Hello, my name is Steve Bloomfield and this is How to Fix, the weekly podcast from Prospect where we try to fix some of the country's and the world's most pressing problems. This week, Brexit. How do you fix Brexit? Well, for a start, it depends on whether you want us to leave or remain. Next week, we'll work out how to fix leaving. Today, though, we're going to see if there's a way to remain. Despite the vote, is it possible for the UK to stay in the European Union after all? It is, and we'll explain how. We're going to hear from the Labour MP Alison McGovern and from Prospect's very own in-house Brexit expert, Alex Dean. But first, here's Prospect's Stephanie Boland. Hello, Steph. Hi. Okay, now, this isn't just a ultra remainy pie-in-the-sky, hopeful, surely there's a way we can stay, please, 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 let it be so issue, is it? There really is actually a way we could possibly not leave the European Union. Well, that's what we're hoping to find out (laughs) over the course (laughs) of this podcast. I think one of the big problems we've got is there's two sides to this. There is the parliamentary procedure. Is there a way with all of the regulations in place to find either a loophole or a way of reversing our position? And then we have the big problem of public opinion. At the moment, there's little appetite in some quarters to really fight for Remain. And I think part of that is we did have a vote for leave just Mm -hmm. over a year ago. Um, So one of the things we'll have to tackle is how do you move the public as you move the legislation? Exactly. That's the issue, isn't it? There is, at the moment, despite the occasional piece you might read or hear someone saying that they regret voting to leave, the polls haven't really moved. There's been an occasional uh, poll that has suggested that more people now want to remain than leave, but nothing consistent, nothing over a sustained period of time, which has meant then that MPs are unwilling to push things further. And this is a difficult question for MPs who have to answer both to their own conscience and to their constituents. And on all sorts of issues, individual MPs feel a different tug on those two things. Some are way more likely to plough their own fur as it were others particularly if they've got a very leave voting constituency even if they voted remain feel beholden to that and some would argue rightly so okay we will dive into these issues uh, in just a moment alex dean will be joining us to go through um, all the different parts of the potential road to remain but first alison mcgovern voted remain and unlike some of her colleagues in parliament she has no problem saying she would do the same with a vote to take place again today As one of the founders of the Labour campaign for the single market, she's also gone further than her own front bench, which, at the moment, says Britain should leave both the single market and the customs union once the transition period is over. Steph headed over to the House of Commons to speak to Alison about how Britain could, after all, potentially end up remaining. In the end, public opinion is really, really important, but I think the general election in June demonstrated that out with an actual opportunity to vote and make an actual choice most people are quite busy thinking about how to pay for next week's shopping and they're probably actually not paying that much attention to all the detail of each and every step as we go people need to realize um, that they're still able to make a choice i think it was david davis who said that a democracy that can't change its mind has ceased to be a democracy And that's essentially what happened in June. People have been looking at Brexit. They were offered a choice by Theresa May. Do you want my version of Brexit or do you want a more Labour way of doing this, essentially? And Labour gained on the Tories. We didn't win the election, but we gained on the Tories. So I think we have to remember that the public are really busy. 
keep trying to demonstrate that there's still a choice here that we're in a negotiation we don't know what the outcome's going to be and if we don't like the outcome well it should be in the public's gift to say actually we choose a government that will revoke article 50. Is there a case to be made for just basically slowing down what we're doing with Brexit? Because it does feel like a lot of big legislative and policy changes are being moved through as quickly as possible at the moment. That's true, but I don't think the pace is the central problem. Okay. The pace is because the Tories are playing to a gallery of Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg and their hard Brexit people. So they want to be able to say we will not be backsliding, we are doing this. And they know that because of that, they have to make our body of law fit. Now, I would argue that if that body of law is not made in a proper parliamentary manner and the country doesn't have its say through its MPs on that body of law, then it's not a good process. But to me, the pace is irrelevant compared to the negotiating position because the negotiating stance of the government at the moment is... We want everything that we have now and we're prepared to give precisely nothing. Now, any trade union official would say to you that if you tell your members, I will get for you everything that we could possibly want and we will have to sacrifice precisely nothing in order to get it, you will not be a very successful trade union official. You know, you won't be the elected branch rep for long because people will just lose faith. And so any good deal has some elements of compromise and some priorities that, that people get on either side. That was Alison McGovern talking to Steph. You're listening to How to Fix. We're joined now by Prospect's Deputy Digital Editor and resident Brexit expert, Alex Dean. Hello, Alex. Hi, Steve. Uh, first of all, uh, burning question from Steph. If you're our Brexit expert, can we call you our Brexpert? Yes, that's fine. Fine, <laughs> fine. That's fine yeah. Okay, let's start by talking about all the problems that we've got coming up with how Brexit itself might actually work. So it's been incredibly chaotic so far. Um, eight months on from triggering Article 50, next to no progress has been made. And the worst thing is the hardest bit is yet to come. So, <laughs> so so, this is just yeah. the easy stuff that it, we're struggling with. It really with. is. So we're holding up this holy grail of sufficient progress for the EU summit in December. And what that means is that the EU would decide that we, we'd, we'd gone far enough in negotiations and given them enough and ceded enough ground um, that they'd be willing to move on to not talks about trade, which we can't legally do until we leave, but talks about talks about trade. <laughs> right. So that's the best case scenario. And that's kind of held up as the thing we need to be aiming for. The problem is, is that even if we can get to sufficient progress, which we haven't got so far, um, we might need to up the divorce bill even more, which we've already made some embarrassing concessions on. Um, the Irish border issues flaring up again, um, as EU citizens' rights and all sorts of things like this. It's really been chaos so far. Even if we can sort all that out, and even if we can get sufficient progress in December, the EU is then going to turn to us and say, okay, we've got you here. Um, you, you finally kind of qualified for this next stage of talks. What would you like to discuss? Um, what future trade relationship would you want? And we're all going to look around the room at one another and kind of one half of the cabinet's going to look at the other half and the other half's going to look back at the other half and they're going to go, ah, we don't know. Um, 
So the coming months are going to be even more challenging than the months that we've already had, and that's saying something. So at the moment, we don't have an answer to a question that we can only hope we get asked. Exactly that. <laughs> what's, uh, what's astonishing is, as you just pointed out there, the problem here isn't the negotiation between Britain and the European Union. The problem is the negotiation between one half of the cabinet and the other half of the cabinet. That you know, that's the issue here. Even on those first three things that you mentioned that we're supposed to be talking about now, the you know, what do we do about the Irish border, EU citizens' rights, and what's the divorce bill, how much are we going to have to pay or contribute over the coming years? Even those things haven't been agreed by the cabinet. And that's without even going to things like the European Court of Justice, on which the cabinet and the government and the party as a whole and you know it, the British politics as a whole is totally split down the middle um, the negotiation in Westminster and in the cabinet is as presents as much of a challenge for a coherent Brexit um, as the negotiation with Europe I think the way I'd see it is that this is such an immense constitutional challenge probably the most you know Britain's most immense constitutional challenge definitely in living memory that it would be incredibly difficult to do it well, even if we were going in with a government with a majority of 150 that was totally united around what it wanted from the start and was kind of lobbying the EU for, the, for that outcome from the start. As it is, the government kind of has a tiny working majority and doesn't know what it wants. So we're kind of hamstrung before we even get going. So do you think Parliament should just, going to say something controversial here, just kill the idea? I think... Probably not. I think what you were saying earlier is key. It's all about the turn in public opinion. MPs are, at the moment, just too frightened to kind of go it alone. And we saw this that recently there was kind of three senior politicians in a kind of cross-party effort took a trip to Brussels in a kind of road-to-remain type way to kind of explore the options there. And it was Andrew Adonis, Ken Clark, and Nick Clegg all former politicians. Mm. No current politician is willing to kind of take that risk uh, or be seen to be subverting the will of the people is the phrase that's always used. The will of the people. It strikes me there there are two issues here that could potentially leave the door open to remaining and both of these are the fault of the Brexiteers. One is how we're negotiating. So the fact that the negotiations are so chaotic we haven't even negotiated with ourselves yet is causing problems and leading to a more likely no deal scenario and the other is the fact that they are going for a hard brexit rather than a softer brexit that could have perhaps garnered more support from people so for example just last week we saw lots of people up in arms about the fact that no british city can be european capital of culture in 2023 it's like this is because we're leaving the eu and and because it's a hard brexit if we were in the european economic area like norway we could still have European capital of culture. Yeah, I think that's right. The interesting thing is going to be, so I think public opinion needs to turn uh, before politicians start getting on board with the idea of remaining. The interesting thing will be what it is that makes public public opinion turn, um, that the negotiations are going badly or that we've gone for a hard Brexit. And which one of those things it is that makes public opinion turn has big ramifications for the road to remain because it affects the timetable. If it's the negotiations going badly, that means we could be looking at kind of a continuity remain. If, as negotiations go on, the public starts to think this is all incredibly chaotic and wasn't worth the effort, we could see that turn in public opinion start to come through in the polls and before we actually leave the EU. And that could then mean that we end up not leaving after all. 
Alternatively, there's the possibility that the hard Brexit could have an economic impact down the line that's so bad that we end up having to do a kind of reapply to join after we've left. And so which what what you think the road to remain is depends on which of those two outcomes you think is most likely. So just to clarify on that, the issue then is do things get so bad before we actually leave that we can put it on the brakes or do things get really bad once we've officially left and we're in the transition period when we're actually out at that stage yeah. and we can't really get back in. Exactly, or even after that. And so there's kind of all these different possibilities for Remain. You know, there's 10 roads to Remain, each of which individually are totally plausible, but quite unlikely, but taken together become not just plausible, but I'd say actually likely. We've already seen that voters were kind of missold a representation of what leave would be, and it's proven harder. We've only just triggered Article 50, and it's already proved infinitely more complicated than the leave campaign made out that it would be. Can I just let my inner spin doctor have a word in here? Because I do think the optics of how politicians who want to reverse the result talk to the public are really important here, in that, by and large, I don't think the public want to hear that they were wrong. In fact, I don't even think they want to hear that they were lied to. Mm. Nobody feels good about the idea that they were duped by Boris Johnson. I mean, it's not a comfortable thing. I think if we want to change public opinion to remain, the best thing to do is to pick upon the idea of those negotiations going badly. You know, turn and say to them, you weren't wrong to vote for that. You did the right thing. You made the correct call, but look at how much these guys are screwing it up. Isn't Mm. it better not to let them do this? And I'm really suspicious of the fact nobody seems to be loudly making that case yet. <laughs> it seems to me a very obvious open goal. It does, doesn't it? And it's, I mean, it's part of the, well, we can get into the sort of the, the, the issues on the Labour front bench here and that you've got Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell who, in their heart of hearts, don't really mind that much that Britain is leaving the European Union. Um, if you had more pro-EU uh, front bench for the Labour Party, then you might have people, politicians more willing to make that case of, look, we're trying this, but these guys are screwing it up. Yeah, I think that's right. I think on the Labour front bench, I think Diane Abbott is kind of genuinely kind of in kind of in her intellectual DNA is, is, is a hardcore pro-European. It's not the same for Corbyn and McDonnell, who kind of have this old school left wing objection to the European Union, which is that it's constraining kind of intervention in the, in the economy in, in the way they'd like to do it. Certainly, you can make the case. I think it's probably a convincing case that the the road to remain uh, would be a hell of a lot easier and nicer and kind of smoother um, if we had you know, an opposition that was pushing hard for it. Um, let's talk about the mechanics, how this actually works. Let's say the talks break down and David Davis comes back from Brussels and says, we're not going to have a deal. That's that. What happens then in the road to remain scenario? Right, so this is kind of the paradox at the heart of the Brexit process, which is that the absolute worst outcome imaginable for a hardcore Remainer is a no-deal Brexit, a breakdown in talks, and we we kind of crash out onto WTO terms and it's all chaos. Uh, That's the worst, that's, you know, that's exactly the kind of situation Remainers were warning about in the referendum campaign of 2016, saying don't vote Brexit or this kind of thing will happen. So they don't want that. But the thing is, is that in a sense, a remain outcome is most likely if the process becomes such chaos that everyone decides it's just not worth it. So you've got this bizarre situation where some remainers are hoping for the chaos that they warned about in order to bring about 
the result that they want. But then what happens if that chaos happens? It, what, talk us through how how we get from David Davis coming back without a piece of paper to wave in the air saying there's no deal. So at the moment, there's this talk of MPs having... It's it's complicated and the government's kind of tries to wriggle out of it. But basically, MPs are going to have a vote on the final Brexit deal that the government returns with. That's kind of plan A. Yeah. And there's, you know, a huge discussion about is, is that going to be a meaningful vote? Is it? And what are the options here? And what happens if they vote it down? Does that mean we just cr- does that mean we crash out with no deal? Does that mean we remain after all? And, and all this kind of thing. The situation you've just described is linked but slightly different. And it's a situation where if talks break down and Davis returns with no deal, that puts Parliament in an incredibly difficult position of having a choice of voting for no deal or no deal. <laughs> in fact, do they even have a vote? Because, because uh, yeah. the, w- uh, as far as we know, they've said there'll be a vote on the deal. Right. And they get to decide whether you have this deal or not. But <laughs> if there's no deal, is there even a vote? Or do we just sort of sleepwalk <laughs> into it? Right. So I think I agree it would be total chaos and the situation couldn't hold. And I think that that would basically precipitate a general election. Fine. Alex okay. tempting fate here. It's okay. making me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> if then, let's take this through step by step. If there's a general election, what does that lead to? Do you have to have a situation where, you know, the Tories say we'll renegotiate with a new team, uh, where Labour say we'll renegotiate with our team, or does either party, one would suspect the Labour Party, say if you vote for us, we won't do Brexit? All <laughs> options there are plausible. <laughs> But And that sounds like maybe a bad thing for the road to remain, but I think it's a good thing. I think so much uncertainty in the system makes, you know, the, the unexpected can happen. Um, I think, it, you know, one uncertainty is, wh- is, is whether, you know, May would stand again or whether they'd kick her out and it would be someone else leading the Tories in the election. But basically the key step is that would the key question would be what platform Labour chose to campaign on. I think it's it's pretty much inconceivable that the Tories would ever campaign campaign on a remain platform no, yeah. but labor might uh, or at the very least would campaign right now the labor's position is, is substantially softer than the tories um on things like continued membership of the customs union at least for the transitional period i think what's interesting here is at the moment jeremy corbyn is doing a fairly good job of triangulating on this right in that the challenge for labor is always can you combine your liberal metropolitan roughly remaining vote with your working class northern roughly levy vote those are kind of Mm. generalizations but um part of what's in play if we get to a point where we have no deal and things look really bad is corbyn or whoever's leading the labor party probably jeremy corbyn going to be able to come out and go hey come with me against a tory version of brexit if you think that's enough to unite the two traditional kind of tense components of the labor party maybe it would work it could work particularly if alex he then says look this hasn't worked, we will renegotiate, and whatever deal we get, we will put to you, the British people, because you voted to leave, but you didn't vote on what the final destination was, we'll give you a vote on that final destination. Right, and I think that that would, so that's the second referendum option, um, which is quite popular in the kind of hardcore Remain camp, because I think there's understandably the view that you it's a bit dodgy to go against the result of the first referendum without a second referendum to cancel it out. Yeah. I think if you add in the point that Steph just made about campaigning not just against Brexit or not against Brexit at all, but against a Tory version of Brexit, we could see that Corbyn, who, you know, despite what he says, is actually can spin with the best of them, would be able to spin his way 
out of the accusation that he was subverting the will of the people, he'd plausibly be able to say, you know, we're just throwing it back into a second referendum. We're asking the people again. If we're doing anything but subverting the will of the people, we're actually, you know, take, taking the pulse again. Then I guess the next step would be if, if Labour wins, there's a lot of ifs in this, but if Labour wins, then there's a second referendum. And, you know, public opinion has turned, as we were discussing earlier, because, for example, negotiations are chaotic. You know, the, the economy is beginning to turn. Um, it doesn't like the uncertainty. You know, a few of the older Leave voters are no longer with us. So there's this kind of a demographic shift. It was only a 48-52 thing last time. It was a close-run thing. I can imagine, you know, Remain's just squeaking over the line. This is all very well, us here in the UK having this debate about oh, can we decide to remain in the end, how that would work and so on. The question is, though, will Europe accept us? Because we have triggered Article 50. Now, you and I have spoken to John Carr, the man who wrote Article 50, who's quite clear that we can revoke it. Can we? Because there is a bit of a legal grey issue here. And then there is also the problem of time. Because there's only two years. We would need to ask for an extension all 27 remaining members of the EU would have to grant us uh, an extension. How likely is that? Right, I think it's quite likely. In fact, overwhelmingly likely. So the issue is that we've triggered Article 50 and there's this two-year countdown and if we do nothing, we're going to get thrown out whether we like it or not. So I think you're right, it does depend on the European Union. The question of whether Article 50 is revocable is an interesting legal question. And for what it's worth, I think there's a growing legal consensus from people like John Carr, the author who we spoke to, who said, of course, you can take it back. There's a growing legal consensus that you can revoke Article 50. But I think even if there wasn't, even if the legal question was incredibly fraught and, you know, there's half lawyers on one side and half lawyers on the other side and they completely disagreed with one another. It's very difficult to conceive of a situation where the UK wanted to remain, the EU wanted the UK to remain, which it does, and senior figures in the EU president of the European Parliament, Donald Tusk, have said as much, where they wanted us to remain and some kind of political fudge wasn't agreed. Article 50, I think, probably is revocable, but even if it wasn't, you know, they'd invent a new treaty, draft a new clause, uh, and we'd end up remaining after all that way. But there is still that issue of time. There's that issue of time in the sense that the timer is ticking. We've, you know, got a year and a half. And if politicians are waiting for public opinion to turn, it depends when public opinion turns in the context of the Article 50 process as to what the mechanics for Remain are. If public opinion turns in 10 years' time because of the long-term structural corrosive effects on the economy that Brexit's had, we'll be out of the European Union and revoking Article 50 won't be a possibility because it will have expired and we'll, have to be, we'll be looking at reapplying to join. If, on the other hand, public opinion turns soon, we're looking at either revoking Article 50 before the two-year countdown expires or possibly extending it. The EU, again, would have to agree to extend it with us. You know, there's a debate about how likely that is. I think it's probably quite likely uh, for the same reasons they, they want us to remain in the end. One thing to watch with the extension of Article 50 is this talk about putting the date of Brexit in the exit bill as 29th March 2019. If they do that, that becomes a whole lot more complicated to extend Article 50 because it looks seems like we're committed in some way to leaving. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. I don't think we've ever done a programme with so many ifs in. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Alex Dean, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Steve.
So, Steph, I hesitate to say, have we fixed it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think we've at least explored some of the permutations there. I think with the caveat that there were more ifs than a Kipling poem, Mm -hmm. I think we have a route or one of several possible routes that Alex has signposted there. I'm sti- I'm speaking very slowly because I'm very uncertain <laughs> about all of the details. But as Alex put it, actually that uncertainty does not necessarily work against remain. No, no. So there I- it is possible to remain, but lots of different things have to happen. Although, as Alex was saying, actually some of those things are far more likely now than they were a year ago. And lots of things have to happen on the way to whatever outcome. I think when we think about leave and remain, we remain is one thing and leave encompasses a whole number of different potential endpoints. And we have to think about those grey areas as well, which is the task for next week, right? Indeed. I just come, we'll come on to next week in just a moment. But I, I just have one question for you about the Labour Party. It, there have been a, a number of interviews with... Labour front benches as one with em- Emily Thornbury at the weekend where she talked about well look uh, if public opinion changes then maybe we should, we'll have to reflect that. There was something with Angela Rayner two or three months ago saying the same sort of thing where you got the sense what they were saying was look I want to remain but I don't want to tell people we should remain I'm waiting for them to tell me they want to remain then I'll push for it. It comes back exactly to this thing of the two halves of the Labour Party. If the Northern vote, Labour's primarily working class vote, Labour's vote in leave constituencies showed a sign of changing their minds, I don't think there is anything holding back the Labour front bench to changing their minds. I think Corbyn, even though he is a long-term Eurosceptic, even though, to my mind, his idea of international solidarity is to do with anti-imperialism before it's to do with things like NATO and the EU, I think even he if he saw public opinion changing, he's made it very clear that he would be open to changing the direction of the party. After all, the main thing that the Corbyn leadership is about is directly reflecting the will of the membership. If it's shown that the will of the membership is for this, there is a chance that Labour will shift its public stance even further. Okay, as you pointed out, uh, next week we will be working out how to fix leave uh, and we'll see if we can do a better job of it than David Davis. Uh, That is it for How to Fix. My thanks to Alison McGovern, Alex Dean and, of course, Steph Boland. How to Fix was recorded and edited by Jesse James and Matt Hill at Rethink Audio here in the heart of Westminster. For further reading, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. One of the things we'll put up there is uh, our very own Road to Remain. If you liked what you heard, do us a favour and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. I'm Steve Bloomfield. That was How to Fix. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.